The Akad and Coca Report, episode number 44. Welcome to the Akkad and Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Coca diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on this episode of the Akkad and Coca Report. I think the conversation here will be a potpourri of topics, uh, but the general theme will be to contrast the political way of getting things done versus the voluntary and humane way of getting things done, particularly in healthcare. We are delighted to have with us Mr. Jeff Deist, who is president of the Mises Institute, which is a wonderful educational institution that promotes a very noble tradition of economic theory and political thought, a tradition that is becoming more and more relevant each day. Mr. Deist is a great writer, speaker, and social commentator. Prior to taking the helms of the Mises Institute uh, in 2013, he was chief of staff for Congressman Ron Paul for many years, and in that capacity, he gained special insights into healthcare sausage making in Washington, D.C. Jeff, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Michelle. It's great to see you just a week after having seen you in person. That's right. It was great uh, meeting you, your wife, and your lovely daughter here in San Francisco. Jeff, uh, you know, we don't, we don't want to talk too much about the Mises Institute, but I really want the audience uh, to, to have a little glimpse of what it, what it is, because it's, it's unlike, you know, your typical think tank, if it's, if it's a think tank at all. Mm-hmm. Can you describe uh, just a little bit what it is? Well, I'll tell you what we hope it is, which is an alternative school of sorts for people of any age, people at any stage in their life who just don't know a lot about economics. And, and really, that's most people in America today, because it's entirely possible to get through high school, even through college, without a single economics course. And if you do manage to have an economics course in either of those two settings, it may well teach you the wrong things that you need to unlearn, at least from our perspective. But, but here's the thing. We would be worried. We would actually be aghast if we were sending our children out into the world as young adults, unable to make change at a cash register, unable to write complete sentences and then a paragraph and then an essay, uh, unable to understand uh, algebra, for example. But yet we send them out into the world with, with little or no understanding of economics, which makes them vulnerable. It makes them vulnerable to politicians. It makes them vulnerable to getting into too much debt, uh, to not understanding their personal finances, all kinds of things. So what we try to do is, is first and foremost, we openly uh, try to present a certain very, very generally, very broadly stated school of economics known as the Austrian school. It's not monolithic. Uh, so we do have a particular axe to grind. We're an advocacy organization in that sense. And, and, but we also try to bring economics to people in a way that academia isn't. We're very critical of economics as a profession today. We don't think it's doing much good for people. It, it has little or no predictive ability. Uh, it's simply a, a gigantic jobs program for academia, for people at the Fed, for people at, at banks, at investment houses, and, and it's not serving people. And I'm sure you see some parallels in medicine sometimes when you get frustrated. So that's, that's generally what we are, and, and we try to be free. We try to have a, a lot of uh, content, a lot of books for free online at Mises.org, a lot of events and that sort of thing. So the people are interested and they want to learn more. Uh, they can come take a look, and uh, it's all online. It's all free, thanks to this 
to this uh, double-edged sword we call the digital revolution. <laughs> right. You know, it, it was um, uh, a, a complete eye-opener for me when I stumbled upon the Mises Institute in 2007, I think. And, and you're right, the resources are absolutely tremendous. And my education began at that point, uh, certainly in economic theory. Um, uh, at that point, it's coherent, it's understandable, it's not a bunch of arcane equations, you know, that completely separate us from the experts who are telling us what to do and what should be done. Um, and in fact, there's very uh, a coherent reason why it should not be mathematical, because human beings are not, you know, engines or machines or, you know, we don't follow the laws of physics. So, so it's based on a, you know, a proper, maybe not a complete understanding of the human person, but a proper understanding of how humans make decisions. And that, of course, is very relevant to medicine. And so I, I was, you know, once I, I learned the basic economics, then I could see some parallels, as you, as you mentioned, to the world of healthcare and how, likewise, in medicine, certainly in academia, there's a, you know, a misunderstanding of how, what patients are, what doctors are, and what we're supposed to do. And a lot of it tends to be mathematized and, and, uh, and, and put into, uh, you know, numbers and formulas and that sort of thing. So, well, maybe this, is, maybe this is the single biggest problem in economics today, regardless of your viewpoint or your politics or anything else. Maybe the single biggest problem is methodology. Economics is a social science, which means that the methodology of the physical sciences doesn't apply or it ought not to apply. So we don't create a hypothesis and go out and test it uh, via empirical data like we're testing a new drug or a new statin or something. Um, it's about human action. And even though humans are made up of cells and molecules, um, they're, they're not cells and molecules. They are these strange, uh, volitional, irrational animals who do all kinds of things. And even if they do something a hundred times in a row, the hundred and first time they might do something unusual, unlike, let's say, an apple falling from a tree. Uh, so, uh, you know, we think that the profession of economics went off on a very bad tangent a little less than 100 years ago, especially during the Great Depression and the era when John Maynard Keynes came out with his general theory book, which is still a hugely influential book, and that uh, economics became, as you say, sort of a mathematized system where we create models and we try to fit human action into this. And of course, all of this led to what we, what we think of as nonsense, but what a lot of economists call macroeconomics. And you've written at Mises.org a little bit about the aggregation of data in medicine. Well, th this is a problem in economics, too. Uh, we, we look at things in the aggregate. And in my opinion, that doesn't always give us a very clear picture of what's going on. It can, be, uh, it can create an illusion in our minds. And it can also give us, as we saw in the crash of 2008, where we had all these brilliant Ivy League people working at central banks, the ECB and the Federal Reserve Bank in the U.S. and the Bank of Japan, um, all these brilliant quantitative people saying everything's great, housing market's great, job market's great, nothing to worry about, stocks are great, and they weren't great. Uh, so the, the mathematizing, uh, the application of social science, or excuse me, of physical science methods to the decidedly social science of economics is a big, big problem. And it's one thing that really sets, again, broadly stated, the Austrian school apart from other schools of economics so, so how is it jeff that um that uh, uh that that it hasn't fallen um 
flat on its face. Uh, you know, why, why, why does it seem that um, there's such a uh, dominance of the uh, other economic school of thought? I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, like as you're saying, and as Michelle is alluding to as well, um, I mean, there isn't even a conversation about anything else uh, in, say, medical school and in, in many undergrads and whatnot. So, you know, what if they're so wrong? Why, why are they? Why have they not been? relegated to the dust heap of, of history, if you will. Well, that's, a, that's an excellent question. I wish I had a better answer for that. And they were in many ways relegated. They, meaning Marxists, uh, as early as the late 1800s. Uh, and, and what we would loosely term the Austrian school was dominant right up until uh, the, the period around the Great Depression in the 30s. But I, I think what has happened is that uh, a, a lot of people have jobs in economics of all of all stripes, and there's, as a result, there's a lot of inertia. There's a lot of self-interest involved in sort of keeping this whole thing going. Uh, whether or not it's working, of course, is a matter of opinion. It, it certainly works for some people. I think central banking, for example, works for some people. I, I think uh, stimulus works for some people. It doesn't work for everybody. Um, so that's that's a question that I think is not yet answerable because I think we need some time and some history to decide whether this experiment uh, is going to continue forever and ever. Remember, it wasn't so long ago that Francis Fukuyama was talking about the end of history and the Berlin Wall was falling and everyone was saying, oh my gosh, now we've got it figured out and we're not going to have these tyrannical governments around the world anymore. We're going to impose this sort of soft social democracy everywhere and the whole world is going to see the obvious rightness of our Western ways. Uh, and that, that has not turned out to be true. And so I think that we may well see in the future that what seems obvious and right to a lot of people in politics and economics today uh, is not. And I hope it doesn't take some sort of nastiness like the crash of 2008 to prove that. I'm not, I'm not cheering for that. I don't have any uh, malevolent desire <laughs> <laughs> to be the guy uh, planting the flag in the rubble and saying, see, see, we were right. That, that doesn't hold any appeal to me. I, I, think, uh, I think there are some very serious structural problems with the U.S. economy and with Western economies with regard to debt and entitlements and all these boring things that people think we can kind of put off into the future. So uh, a fair question, a, a fair question on your part. And all I can, my, my only response can be time will tell. Well, let's go back in time a little bit, uh, and I'm going to switch gear. You worked for uh, a physician, you know, a doctor uh, who was who happened to be uh, a, a congressman as well, Ron Paul, um, for how many years? Did, well, were you uh, chief of staff? About, about five years in two different stints. Okay, okay, and so you you had an insight into. Uh, you know, uh, Ron Paul is not known necessarily for, uh, you know, despite the fact that he was he's a doctor, uh, he was not all that involved in, in uh, healthcare policy, um, and probably for, for good reason. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, I suspect that you were involved with uh, healthcare issues, and you saw a little bit how that's happening um, uh, in Congress. Uh, do you want to share with us some of these uh, uh, insights or experiences? Well... I mean, the first, the first thing that comes to mind when I think of, of Ron, Dr. Paul, uh, is that he was an OBGYN for so many years. And, and what happened was that just as he was finishing medical school, the Korean War came along. 
And so his friendly draft board informed him that he was likely to be drafted, but if he would sign up and enlist, that they would make him a flight surgeon in the Air, in the Air Force, which sounded to him like a slightly better alternative to being a, a foot soldier, let's say, in the Army. So he signed up, and after spending some time over there, he ended up at an Air Force base in San Antonio, Texas. And back then, this is so great, back then um, they w- would all rotate shifts at the base hospital. And of course, regardless of your underlying specialty, they would all do tonsillectomies, they would all deliver babies, they would all do appendectomies. It was very generalized in a way that you don't see today. And so when he finished there, um, earning an extra $2 an hour uh, for uh, extra shifts that he would take on Saturdays at the hospital, $2 an hour, um, him and his wife Carol decided that they would stay in Texas. They liked the warm weather. So they chose this little town of Lake Jackson, and between about Houston and San Antonio, there was one older OBGYN. So Ron went and talked to him in Lake Jackson, Texas, and so they decided that um, Ron would work for him briefly, maybe during his last year, and that he would retire and Ron would take over. So his first day in the office as an OBGYN, mind you, he was never an employee of anyone. His first day in his office, he had a waiting room full of patients. He had no malpractice insurance. He had no student loan debt. He had an arrangement with the older doctor to slowly buy the equipment. Ultimately, he bought the building. And he had a small staff, none of whom were involved in medical billing. Even the receptionist would take blood pressure or do patient-facing things. So what a remarkable story versus the young people coming out of medicine today. And so, you know, as a result, Ron always had this very independent streak in him. He didn't want to be an employee. Um, And and one of the remarkable things about his early practice, imagine no malpractice insurance for an OB today. (laughs) But one of the remarkable things was that like all doctors of his era, he had a certain percentage of women in in his practice who couldn't pay. They, they just couldn't pay. And so he, he saw them, he, he helped them with their, with their pregnancies, he delivered their babies, and he wrote it off. And this was not considered some noble sacrifice on his part. This was just what doctors did. It was a cash-based practice, and a certain percentage of those women couldn't pay. And, you know, and I got to tell a story. Lou Rockwell will, will not be happy with me, but... Back at, at, at that time, late 60s, early 70s, I guess there was still the term a young girl in trouble. <laughs> and this met a girl with a pregnancy and, and not a beau or a husband or a boyfriend. And so Ron, of course, uh, came in contact with several of these, of these people. And he arranged uh, for, for Lou and his wife to adopt a young baby from a girl who's, who was having some trouble in life. And that girl today is, uh, I guess, in her 30s, and uh, she is Lou and Marty's wonderful daughter. So it's... Uh, oh, that's that, amazing. That happy, I, I didn't know that story. A happy story, yeah. Thanks. But, you know, you fast forward, and um, because because all of us in Ron's office were very strong libertarians, we had, a, we had an interest in lots of things. We had an interest in health savings accounts. We had an interest in seeing me- uh, dietary supplements not monkeyed with. Um, we had a very strong in- interest in opposing the Medicare Part D prescription drug bill. So we had some interesting fights. One of them was on uh, what some of your 
your, your listeners will know as the Deshay legislation of the early 1990s. Now, this was 10 years later, but that stands for the Dietary Supplement Health Something Act. I can't remember. Uh, but the Deshay Act was a compromise passed by Congress, and it resulted in that little stamp you'll see on the side of supplements. It says, you know, you're buying your ginkgo or whatever, and it says this product is not intended to diagnose, cure, or treat any disease. Well, by but the, one of the one of the compromises of that bill was stamping that little thing on the side. But uh, in exchange, it allowed for a, a fair degree of, of freedom in offering supplements. Um, which are not FDA approved. So, uh, you know, we thought that Deshay was important. Uh, it was under attack by then Senator Hillary Clinton, who is really bad on health freedom, by the way. A lot of people don't know that. Um, but th one thing that we had going for us in terms of uh, support for health supplements was just the simple fact that baby boomers were getting older. And baby boomers like their supplements. Now, maybe 90% of this stuff in the health food store is snake oil. And, uh, you know, I, okay. But nonetheless, they, they serve as a large cohort uh, that wants to be able to buy glucosamine and chondroitin for their knees, that wants to buy a coenzyme Q10 for their heart, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the, by and large, the baby boom generation believes in supplements and, and consumes a lot of supplements. So that gave us some support uh, from the industry uh, to guard against attacks on Deshay. Uh, but let's not kid ourselves. There is a, uh, an international commission under the auspices of the United Nations called Codex Alimentarius, which is much more active in Europe. And as a result of that, supp health supplements are uh, much more regulated in Europe. When you go into a store in Germany, let's say, you can only buy little tiny 100 milligram vitamin Cs or something like that. Um, so we do have a degree of freedom in the United States uh, because of the Deshay Act surviving against some people who would like to attack it. And the, the number one uh, group of people who would like to attack it are the pharmaceutical industry because they don't much appreciate um, <laughs> having alternatives to their drugs on the market, especially when they spend millions or billions of dollars getting those drugs to market and getting them through the FDA approval process. So one of the most unholy things I have ever witnessed in my life was the passage of the Medicare Part D prescription drug bill in June of 2003. Um, for those who recall, uh, this was a naked sop to senior citizens. George W. Bush wanted to be able to offer seniors something so they would vote for him against John Kerry. Uh, would he have won the 2004 election without Medicare Part D? I don't know. That would be speculative. But what I do know is there was a very, very colorful committee chairman named Billy Tozan. And Billy Tozan was from New Orleans, and he was larger than life, and uh, he was known for cutting corners ethically here and there. He was the chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee, which had jurisdiction over uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, for, for one thing. And so he shepherded this Medicare Part D prescription drug bill through the House and Senate and ultimately into being signed. And what that bill entailed was basically the greatest thing that had happened in a long time for pharmaceutical companies because some seniors, of course, without drug coverage on their private plans, don't have money. And all of a sudden, all these less affluent seniors will be able to buy your drugs, seniors who heretofore could not. 
So, of course, the pharmaceutical companies were all behind this. And we looked at some of the actuarial tables at the time uh, with the, the help of the Congressional Budget Office, which I got to put a plug in, is actually an excellent and competent nonpartisan uh, part of the Fed, U.S. Uh, federal legislature. The CBO? the Congressional Budget Office. Mm -hmm. So they, they sort of proved out in an actuarial fashion that the drug benefit we were about to provide to older people based on the aging population, based on life expectancies, uh, would actually cost more in actuarial terms down the road than the original Medicare bill from the 60s. In other words, drugs cost more than, than doctor visits. Right. Uh, so it's an actuarial nightmare. It is a big part of what is exploding our entitlement gap in the future, where we have this two hundred trillion with a T uh, differential between what we're likely to owe people in entitlement promises, especially Medicare and Social Security, and what we're likely to take in in taxes. So down the road, there's a two hundred trillion dollar gap that economists have figured out. So, right. Uh, the the, Medicare, know, funny that, the uh, Medicare bill is part of that. We rarely hear um, the you know everybody's talking now about the uh, the drug price crisis. You know how drug prices have gone through the roof. Uh, hardly is it ever mentioned or timed or connected to the passage of Medicare Part D. Um, well, well, and, and it was, a, and it, was it may not be terrible that clean. It may not be a direct cause and effect. There may be other uh, issues as well, but certainly it seems that you know it, it was uh, it became acute in the last ten years. You know, and it so happens that that's when Part D was passed. So, well, the band aid approach, of course, would simply to be allow allow drug importation from other countries. Anyone who's visited Canada or Mexico recently knows that you can buy over the counter. Uh, far cheaper there, especially with basic stuff like Keflex. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, th this bill was, it, it was very unholy. It was, it was literally passed at 2.30 in the morning. Uh, s members of Congress were threatened. There was one in particular, uh, a gentleman named Nick Smith from Michigan, who was set to retire. And his son was, was hoping to, to take over the seat. And Tom DeLay... Some of you will remember that name. He was the infamous House Majority Whip during the years of the Dick Army speakership in Congress. Tom DeLay basically told him, your son will never be a congressman if you vote no on this turkey. So it was, it was just a, an opportunity for me as a, as a libertarian-minded person to see um, just what perverse incentives Congress will put in place and, and how anti-market the system is. How, so how do... Um... It, what, what, I mean, what do you do about the problem of uh, uh, seniors that aren't able to get certain drugs? I mean, it's such a it's such a complicated thing, right? Because you have, of course, folks that are affluent enough to be able to buy drugs, and so their ability to pay, you know, whatever percentage of list price they can pay exists. And then you have this other. I mean, you have this segmented market in terms of what they can pay, um, and and clearly the whatever existed before wasn't working for that group of folks. And that's why, you know, that's why there's this push. I mean, George Bush doesn't wake up just one day, as you said, George Bush doesn't wake up one day just saying, hey, I want to do this. He wants to do this because he can, you know, he can get votes and there's a sizable portion of folks that want that. So how do you, how, I mean, this is a challenge that constantly faces, uh, faces us in healthcare. How do you communicate that to, um, to patients? Meaning, how, how, don't you have to give them 
a solution, uh, some type of a solution, or uh, uh, you know, how, how do you how do you go about making making those inroads into that? Well, I think there's two basic ways. One is that you have single payer, taxpayer provided healthcare with rationing, <laughs> where we have to say who needs it the most and what drugs uh, ought they get, ought they to get. Um, and I think the other way is to let the market work entirely. That means no patents. Uh, that means bare knuckle competition. That means importing drugs. And it, and it also means creating a generally more prosperous economy that gives people more disposable income. I think that uh, drug prices are, are in many cases inflated and artificial. Um, so there's the, the, the problem for us is that the U.S. wants to take this middle path. <laughs> we, have the, we have the worst of both worlds. Um, we don't seem to want to take a market approach, and, and we don't seem to just want to just throw up our hands and say, okay, we're going to be England, we're going to be Canada, we're simply going to have uh, uh, drugs provided for free um, with everything that goes along with that. But uh, look, I understand some of the arguments that if the U.S. government was a gigantic buyer, it would have negotiating power, and, and pretty soon some of these drugs would be a lot cheaper. Um, you know, I understand these economy of scale arguments, but uh, I just have to disagree with them because I have information from people in in markets like the UK and Canada, where you literally have physicians um, in, as employees of the nationalized health service, and you have drugs being provided for free, and places like France, where physicians aren't directly employees of the National Health Service, but but how much they're paid, how much each service gets, how much drugs cost is set by legislative fiat. And, and they both have serious problems with shortages. So um, do, do I guess have... if you ask a doctrinaire libertarian what to do about something, you get a doctrinaire libertarian answer, <laughs> which is free it up and let prices fall. But But also we have to accept imperfections and limitations in life. Um, when we, when we were young people, uh, we didn't have all the, all the wonderful drugs there. We didn't have all the MRI treatments. We didn't have everything we've got today. And, and some of these things cost more money um, than the old-fashioned healthcare we had as kids. But what I truly believe in, what I absolutely believe is that we need to allow people to pay cash for basic services and let competition among doctors drive that down. I think we need to have high deductible, catastrophic type insurance for most people, especially people under 40, where really your biggest risk is a car accident or a fall. Uh, high deductible, you know, uh, cheap, catastrophic only insurance, which just covers hospitalization, nasty things happening, uh, but it, 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 but is cheap. And then I think we need to have a system of charitable hospitals and charitable clinics and charitable doctors for the truly indigent and poor uh, and, and, and let technology do what it does. Let deflation do what it does. Why, why is it that things that cost cash like plastic surgery and LASIK eye surgery uh, get better and cheaper over time? And why is it that things where the government is involved in mandating insurance in basically uh, inserting a third-party quasi-private middleman in the form of an HMO or whatever. Why do these things seem to get more expensive, longer wait times, et cetera? Uh, I, I think the answer is, is the, the lack of discipline the market imposes. So, um, you know, that's not, that's not a political answer for seniors.
I, I think the main problem is is to want to have a solution that is uh, on on such a huge scale. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if we want to buy, you know, if we're talking about a solution for 300 million people, then of course, you know, at that point you say, well, you know, it's impossible, you know, without a safety net to cover everybody. But you know, since when is it the, the you know, the, the the duty of the government of the federal government to provide a solution for 300 million people? I mean, it's impossible. And the safety net is inevitably going to be some kind of, uh, you know, is going to be taken advantage of. You know, how can they, you know, uh, decide who's really, um, uh, you know, who's really destitute and who or who really needs the help, who doesn't need the help, and that sort of thing. And so, and the same argument then can be applied to at the state level because states are quite large. I mean, it's millions of people, and so forth and so forth. And then, when you if you if you bring it down to the to the really the the local the personal level. You go back to the example that you you gave about uh, Ron Paul, about how you know we help each other out. I mean, and that's a very natural way of of going about things. And people can, you know, get together and and set up funds because you know by then the prices of drugs will be will be much lower. Will be much lower. You know, especially if we also get rid of all the uh, the artificial uh, requirements for you know, regulation, the FDA demands to, to prove that the drugs are efficacious, all this nonsense that, that uh, you know, and then, and then, you know, the safety net becomes uh, completely irrelevant. I mean, the safety net is the community, if, is, is the good side of human beings, which it exists, you know, so long as we remind ourselves that, you know, there has to be a good side of human beings. Otherwise, if there's no good side to human beings, you know, forget it. You know, let's, let's become Marxists and, and, uh, and have our, our human nature you know, re-engineered, but otherwise there is, and and there is, and we have to to. Uh, but folks, the, a lot of a lot of the advances in medicine, say, right, have come not because have, have come not in the attempt to um, try to create a solution for the entire population per se, right? It's come mm-hmm. it's come in um, in expending vast amounts of resources on small, tiny, tiny groups of people that have very rare diseases that used to used to die. Um, so, you know, little, little babies that were born blue or uh, little, you know, little, little babies that were born without working livers or, um, uh, you know, children that are born with um, some type of ocular melanoma that, you know, only, you know, 700 are born a year, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in the entire United States. And while, you know, I'm an independent physician, so are you, Michelle, and, you know, um, we both, I'm sure, write off a fair amount of stuff in terms of trying to help people that can't pay. Um, we don't have the ability to help or we don't have the ability to um, expend the type of resources that are needed to mm-hmm. save a, you know, save somebody who has, you know, some ocular melanoma that requires a radiation plaque to be developed that's then placed into the eye. You know, I mean, the type of resources that it requires um there just aren't enough of those people there's enough of a market for them and it takes you know it takes um i i, I have trouble i mean I'm, I'm asking you guys more so than telling you per se how do we like what is the solution for that group of folks because as as we become, we become richer and richer as a nation of course you know these tiny little groups of people become you know more and more uh, uh significant if you will you know i mean nobody talks about these children in in, in, in underdeveloped nations that are sim- that are right now struggling with basic infrastructure and struggling with you know uh, sewage, right? Um, they have much different needs. Now we've solved all these you know <laughs> third world problems, and now our problems are 
you know, uh, you know, it's just diminishing returns in terms of that we're focusing on these mm -hmm. small group of people with these terrible illnesses, but that it require a vast amount of resources that no Ron Paul or Anish Koka or Michelle Akkad are going to be able to uh, uh, fix, no matter how, no matter how nice we are. Well, I think, as you point out, first and foremost, we have the ability to even address these problems because we have the level of economic development that makes us a so-called first world nation. So that's the first thing to, to remember is let's not kill the golden goose. Uh, but number two is we, we have to accept that there's always scarcity. There's always allocation of resources in, in any scenario, no matter how uh, advanced we get with our technology. So the question becomes, who makes the decision about whether to, let's say, uh, 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 expend vast amounts of resources within the national, the NHS, uh, um, in, in, let's say, in Britain, or the NIH here in the United States, uh, spend vast amounts of taxpayer resources trying to come up with a solution to a rare problem that affects 700 babies a year in the United States, well, I, I can't make that decision, and, but I don't think a politician or a bureaucrat can either. Uh, so as, as imperfect as it might seem or as unhappy as it might seem, I think we have to understand that what we want is the best possible allocation of resources based on what people truly care about and what they truly value. And in my view, the marketplace will always reflect that more than government. It's just it's just the nature of things. People care about their own money and the people closest to them more than they care about other people's money and abstract problems. Right. Plus, I think we have to remember that, you know, it, it's uh, the the safety net uh, pretends that they actually uh, save people, but but they in fact they don't. Oh, they rarely do, or they may some, but they don't others. You know, we we had a conversation with a. A Canadian physician a couple of weeks ago about their healthcare system, and poor people in Canada do worse and don't get access compared to rich people, and it's the same here. So, you know, saying that we're going to have an impersonal, you know, safety net coming coming from the government and it's going to work, uh, it turns out it's not. I mean, nowadays people with completely treatable diseases, if they're poor, they don't get the treatment. If they have diabetes, you know, they they don't get the treatment. It's the same thing. So we don't even have to conjure the, the the scenario of the rare diseases you know the common diseases that are treatable are not getting treated even with the uh, uh you know the, the the diversion of funds from uh from taxpayers so i, I think would and, and then i think you know and in truth i think i think they would i mean even corporations would i mean if you have like 800 kids who need a liver transplant you know the corporations if they are freed from all the, the these you know you know uh, their burdens that they currently have would step up to the plate because they 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 had been doing that in the past they, they will do this again it's it's good pr for them they will step up to the plate it won't necessarily have to be just you know you on your own you know or me on my own uh, you know uh, left to my own devices to do this there'll, there'll be large resources pulled together i think it seems perfectly it's really clear. Clear. Yeah. It seems clear that uh, the market is uh, is unable to be repressed, regardless of what system it is. The there's a story I think it's from within the last month about uh, you know the the NHS um, and uh, the NHS. I, I think I'm getting this right, uh, but the NHS instituting some type of policy to deal with you know this um, inability to get appointments in a reasonable time frame. That you know if you pay a certain amount of money per year, you can get same day appointments. So even in the NHS. 
you know, the market, right. Uh, right. the market. Right. Was, uh, and then what we're seeing, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll answer, I'll try to answer my own uh, long question in terms of this rare disease issue and what, you know, what to do. Um, as, as we're seeing, and one of the things, you know, me and Michelle and a bunch of folks, uh, you know, a, a lot of folks are concerned about in terms of uh, raising the bar for regulation um, in the United States, whether it be for drugs or devices, and uh, we don't see the we don't see the true cost of innovation that doesn't happen, right? Um, uh, what's happening as these bars are being raised, um, and drug companies are saying, you know, to heck with this, you know, we're not going to do research on this. We're just going to do a bunch of me too drugs that are, you know, have marginal return, but Hey, we know we're going to make a lot of money on that. You're seeing, um, societies, uh, of patients, uh, getting together and funding, uh, their own research. Um, you know, so, uh, you're kind of seeing, um, you know, uh, once again, the kind of, uh, the market is, uh, uh, seem to be, uh, un unstoppable, uh, if you will. So, what strikes me is the way we've changed our approach to HIV drugs. Um, but in the 80s and 90s, when AIDS was a death sentence and often a quick one, there was a sense of urgency to the research. And then some drug cocktails came along that enabled people to live years, decades, perhaps the rest of their lives just fine, not just fine, but, but to live um, with HIV. And it's, it, it seems that for me as someone who just, uh, peruses the popular press that there's not that urgency anymore that we sort of just live with HIV rather than trying to radically cure, I guess, what is a virus that causes it. Right. Um, you know, I want to get back to the Mises Institute, uh, maybe tell a little bit how, uh, to me, the, for doctors and the audience or people uh, uh, listening to the show here, one of the most important thing that I've learned uh, through the Mises Institute is the question of prices and how prices are, are set. And, uh, you know, for most people, it seems to be, and, and, I think, and, and for me, before I, I understood it, it seemed to be such a, an arbitrary thing or a mysterious mm -hmm. thing or people can set price, you know, however they want and, and this and that. Um, as it turns out today, there was a, a tweet from a, a prominent healthcare economist who was, um, you know, saying that the, you know, there's a Trump mandate or a mandate from CMS to ask for trans price transparency. And he was uh, belittling this as saying, well, it doesn't, um, you know, it's not going to help to ask for price transparency if all that the uh, hospitals will do is just you know, be transparent with their list prices when we know that the list prices don't really reflect, reflect, uh, you know, what the real prices are. But the truth is that most healthcare economists support a system where real prices don't exist at all, right? It's not just a matter of list prices versus contracted prices or whatnot. I mean, the real prices don't exist in the system at all. And, and most economists from my, uh, you know, uh, most mainstream economists, have this idea that I mean have seems to have a, a misunderstanding of how prices are you know how they should be set and how they are set you know because again they have this sort of mathematical empirical bias and they think that you know you can manipulate these things perhaps with a little effect that you you know you can have your central planner moving the equations here and there and and have the the price set exactly in the sweet spot where you want it and not understand the consequences of it so for me you know learning a little bit what Human, how human action 
and interactions, really, because it's we're, we're social animals, we live in societies, we live in communities, we're all dependent on one another, right? And this dependence leads to exchanges, which then leads to certain prices that convey some information about the goods, you know, the relative value of goods and services. It's just a fantastic eye-opener, and then you can't really look at things the same way. And so I want to to mention that, to draw the audience to the Mises Institute website, you know, to, to have them, you know, encourage them to, to, to learn a little bit more about how, what prices really are, right? They're not just things that corporations, you know, decide to set wherever they want because they're greedy or governments can set because they're, you know, well-meaning and they want to help the poor and they want to, you know, they bring the prices down, that sort of thing, you know, that's, that's a complete distortion of reality. And so, so I, I wanted to, to mention that, uh, before perhaps before we close, but uh, any other comments about what the Mises uh, Institute can contribute to the healthcare conversation? Because I think it can just you know simply by you know by providing you know sound principles of economics. Um, but I think in other ways about you know it's it's very human approach to me, which we mentioned at the, at the beginning of the show, to how we we yes. deal with one another. Well, absolutely it is. And, and as you mentioned, we can first and foremost disabuse people of ideas like the labor theory of value or the cost theory of prices. Um, right. But as you say, prices are information. They're signals uh, about how much people value things. And they're, they're based on the meeting of supply and demand, which is constantly shifting. So prices are constantly being discovered. And when we muck about with them, when we try to set them, um, uh, bad things happen, uh, either uh, with regard to supply or demand. We have uh, shortages or uh, <laughs> or too high prices or, or whatever we have. So um, I think the, the knock on doctors, and I don't know if this is true, uh, but the, the knock on doctors is that they're, because of their backgrounds, because they're generally high intelligence people, um, that they overestimate their uh, understanding of other fields, that they imagine themselves also quite competent in economics or also quite competent in personal investing or whatever it might be. Um, so we have a lot of doctor fans. We're involved with Jane Orient's organization. We're involved with the Free Market Medical Association that Dr. Keith Smith runs out of his surgery center in Oklahoma City. And uh, I hope that we can be a resource to people who really understand that there's nothing magical about the provision of health care or medical services, there's nothing magical about the provision of drugs that makes them different than other goods or services in the marketplace. And there's no sort of special right to compel other people to provide you with medical treatment or drugs. And that when we start insisting that, when we get into this positive rights theory uh, of medicine, things could go downhill very quickly. Right. And all you need to do if you believe in single payer, if you believe in a right to health care, so-called, is uh, v visit the former Soviet Union, uh, visit Venezuela, visit a lot of places where they wrote into law a right to health care and, and see where it took them. So I hope that Mises.org is, is, a, is a resource and you know an, an entertaining and enjoyable and enlightening place for anybody who has an interest in this sort of thing. Yeah, one of... One of the problem, one of the big problems, is that um, uh, you have such ideological uh, homogeneity in uh, among a lot of doctors because um, again, again, there's no exposure to alternative schools of thought, and and the and the reason that's proposed is that um, 
it, it's, uh, is that uh, the evidence suggests that this is the best way. And there isn't this empiric, uh, you know, foundational basis for, for anything else. So the reason everyone is running around saying the same thing isn't because they're all cut from the same cloth, which I think they are. Um, there's some amount of selection in terms of how they get to where they are in terms of saying what they're saying. But the reason they're saying is that you know, they're super smart intellectual people who have examined the evidence objectively and have arrived at the conclusion that single payer is the best thing, that Medicaid expansion is the best thing, that you know that uh, the evidence says Medicare Part D is the best. So it's this constant battle against... Uh, it, so it, 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 it's not it's not that you're having a debate. It's that you're battling against, you know, uh, they, they believe that they have found the truth. This is the truth. And so it's this battle against empiricism, I guess. And, uh, and uh, you know, do you have how, how do you uh, how do we effectively make inroads against that, would you say? Well, I, I think there's plenty of empirical evidence from the former Soviet Union. Uh, from China and from some other places that socialism and collectivism don't work too well and actually don't increase uh, the uh, physical, mental health or economic well-being of anyone. Uh, so I think that that's a good starting point. But, uh, you know, they're, they're, you're right. Doctors tend to be smart people and they tend to be strong-willed people as a result. You know, the, but, the, the biggest knock, I'm sorry, Jeff, the biggest knock from my standpoint against doctors is that they, they believe in the, in the labor theory of value very strongly because of licensing. You know, many mm -hmm. of them feel that they've put in all these long hours and effort, many years of training. And at the end of that, they're entitled to a certain salary. And of course, most patients, especially nowadays, are not going to be willing to sustain the lifestyle, you know, the income of doctors they've, they've gotten used to for so many years. And therefore, there's a, you know, then a natural, uh, you know, look to government to provide the funds that doctors are entitled to because they've, they've spent so many so many years studying medicine and they're so smart and so forth so I think uh, it, to me empiricism is a problem but the, the you know and they're related they're, they're you mm -hmm. know uh, two different aspects of, of, of similar flaws but the labor theory of value is is the biggest one as far as I'm concerned you're not making a strong argument for why doctors should be libertarian Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> you're saying most of us need to need yes. to make would make way less money if they were. yeah I mean my, my uh, the, the only plug is that sooner or later the market reasserts itself and you, you you'd better take your income cuts soon the way I've done you know my you know immediately <laughs> rather than wait for the whole thing to crash and uh, and, uh, and be left, uh, you know, running around. Uh, uh. Anyways, uh, Jeff, it's been great to have you. Uh, really enlightening. Uh, I'm delighted that to, we're giving the audience a chance to, to learn about the Mises Institute uh, through this conversation. And we will have the links, uh, the proper links on the show notes. And, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'd love to have you back. There's a lot more that can be teased out, so perhaps a little bit more technically, uh, going forward, uh, in terms of parallels between the way the uh, you know medical um, academic uh, views things and the way the way uh, mainstream economists view things, I mean they're they're very uh, as you mentioned earlier the aggregate uh, thinking about things. So thank you for joining us uh, very much, and uh, and we hope to see you next time. Well, thank you for having me. It was great. I enjoyed it.
Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.